Welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop as we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold cassette inlays, or slip out CD booklets. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation album shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our musical journeys. I hope that you'll enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the podcast on your favourite podcast place and let me know your thoughts and feedback too. And there's plenty more with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. For this episode, we welcome Mark Wood. Mark's pop adventures began in the record department of W.H. Smith in the early 80s before landing himself at Smash Hits in the hot summer of 88, rubbing swingerillion shoulders with the likes of Gloria Estefan, Hazel Dean, Bross and yes, Spania. Mark joined Virgin later that year and in 1993 was part of a team opening stores all across the UK and Europe. By the end of the 90s, he was a singles buyer for the hour price chain. The new millennium saw Mark expanding his expertise with Virgin Digital, interviewing a host of glittering stars including Gwen Stefani, Amy Winehouse, Destiny's Child and my personal favourite, Various X Spice Girls. Moving to Universal in 2007 as product manager for their TV comps label UMTV, Mark has worked on, amongst others, the Brit albums and the Soul City collections, which he claims to be his favourite piece of work. Most recently, Mark has been delivering a dazzling array of reissues as marketing manager at UMC, working on campaigns in the UK for artists including Grace Jones, Elton John, Simple Minds, The Chemical Brothers, Human League and Mark Armand. And if that wasn't enough, he has helped compile some smashing box sets too. The glam rock behemoth, Oh Yes We Can Love, and the glittery delight that is the complete introduction to disco. We started by talking about one of Mark's biggest musical passions, what The Guardian describes as Britain's greatest and strangest nightclub, Ducky. 1994, me and my best friend, we decided that we, we we would start DJing together. It was the height, obviously, of all the big name DJs, superstar DJs, Ibiza and all that stuff. And we, we didn't really want to do that. What we wanted to do was play, I don't know, seven inch singles, basically. Sound and Vision, David Bowie. We wanted to Kate Bush Loud, Northern Soul singles. I got given a load of soul original 60s soul singles. We wanted to play novelty records like Naughty, Naughty, Naughty or Telephone Man. You know, we had absolutely no interest in driving a dance floor. And we kind of found our niche. At Mark's brother, my, my, my DJ partner and best mate, um, was running these kind of events in West London. They were like free-form you know, happenings with poets and bands. And, you know, we just DJ between all of these other acts. And then we'd be playing girls at our best singles and just things that we hadn't ever heard loud. We, you know, we'd done the clubbing thing, the house thing. It was all amazing and everything like that. As You know, it was just an opportunity for us to kind of do something different. And we got such a good response. You know, Amy was newly over. She'd been over for a few years. She was an American girl from New Jersey, had come over very young. She came to Britain because she liked the Smiths and Depeche Mode. A guy called Simon and Dominic, who lives above me, and they knew all these sort of alternative performers who did other stuff and they, there was nowhere for them to perform. So they got a four-week uh, tenancy at the arse end of 1995 uh, when no one else wanted it in a pub that had seen much better days. It was the Vauxhall Tavern then, now the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And they needed some DJs. And Dominic from upstairs just said, my mates do this thing where they're already DJing. And I was asked and I said no, because I didn't want to stand up for five hours. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how committed we were. But we did it. We said yes, okay. And then the day came for the first one and I just sort of thought, this is a terrible idea. You know, everyone's going to come and they're going to be expecting all the big chart hits of the day. All my seven-inch singles um, in a beer crate that was our set, you know, Blamange singles. And um, and I just sort of thought, this is a terrible idea. And also, Vauxhall was rough in the 90s. It was... Um, so, so we took a hammer and a chisel, actually, in case we got attacked. That I'm not joking. That we're in the same beer crate as the singles. We took a few KTL albums and we kind of got there to this pub. It was dilapidated. There was a hole in the floor. There was water running down. You know, we did the first night... And and people started dancing. They were dancing to X-ray specs. And, you know, I, we thought, this is this is all right. You know, we, at midnight, we dropped Wuthering Heights. And place just it went absolutely bananas. 
this was for four weeks. You know, that's all it was booked for, for four weeks. And, and we had absolutely no faith that anybody, uh, apart from our own partners, brothers, sisters, best mates, was ever going to come. We'd covered the dance floor with settees. We bought a load of old settees and 70s standard lamps. You know, make it look full. And by second week or maybe the third week, we were having to pull those out because we had queues down the block. I mean, I just, you know, you read about this thing happening to, to other people. It got to the fourth week and it was like, do you want to do next year? And we were like, yeah, I suppose so. So we carried on. You know, that's turned into 25 years of being in the same venue every Saturday night, but also doing all sorts of other things, you know. It's that idea of actually being able to hear something really loud. That's all I ever wanted to DJ for. Me too, yeah. What we wanted to do with Ducky, because what we didn't want to do at Ducky was have any rules. We just wanted to play good records. So there'd be no, we're an 80s night or anything. The year we started DJing, there was a, we found ourselves in a new romantic revival night. Probably Romo, actually. It was probably that time. Somewhere in Soho, underground. And we walked in and I heard, for the first time ever, Ashes to Ashes over a club PA. And it was amazing. And then the DJ played Hard Times by the Human League. And that was amazing. You know, we just had this instinct that we couldn't be the only gays in London that didn't necessarily want to hear the same music that everywhere else played. We didn't have any rules because we had such low expectations anyway. We set our own rules. So there was never, you know, once the first night went so well and the second night and the third night, etc., then it was kind of our house. If you don't like it, Get out. Get out. <laughs> I was born in the mid-60s in Woolworth in South East London to a big working class family. Mum and dad were quite young when they had me. I was the first. There were quite a lot of records about, mostly my dad. When I think about my mum, she's always singing Peggy Lee. She, she had, I think she might have owned It Might As Well Rain Until September by Carole King from her brief teenage rebellion. But but really, it was my mum's sisters. One of them was 17 and one of them was 14. So they lived round the corner, you know, and they babysat, they brought me up. So it's, it's sort of their records I remember most of all. So Small Faces singles, Rolling Stones, uh, all the Supremes and Motown stuff. They had a lot of records. They were typical 60s teenage girls. Alice, the youngest, was always bunking off school to go and meet the Small Faces at the airport or hang around outside Top of the Pops. You know, like she lives in a castle on Guernsey now so doesn't seem to have done her much harm Uh, my other auntie the middle one um, Janet I remember really remember her and her best friend Sherry babysitting me one night mum and dad were out getting dragging the record player out the mono record player and playing Flowers in the Rain by The Move apparently my favourite song as a toddler was Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear I don't remember Janet tells a story now about testing me on the top 20 in 1969, I think it was. And I got every, I knew everything. It was, it was like as soon as I could talk, I was answering. And it got to Hey Jude. Who sings Hey Jude? And I went, Wilson Pickett. And one of the girls said, that's not by Wilson Pickett. That's by the Beatles. You know, like he's got one wrong. And uh, in the Daily Mirror, you know, I was right. It was the Wilson yeah. And I'd got it right. So then we sort of go into the sort of early 70s. And I remember albums coming in more. Mum and dad had a few, like Carol King. You always, your guests always mention Bridge Over Troubled Water, Elton John albums, Rod Stewart albums, the Maggie, Every Picture Tells a Story one, uh, Motown Chartbusters, definitely. Yeah. They've come up before. Tighten Up, the, the um, Trojan Tighten Up album with the. Volume 2, which has got the woman's torso with the lipstick writing. I definitely remember that growing up. And just the, and the radio being, like I said, the radio was always on. And a lot of family parties, you know, mum and dad would always get up and do the rock and roll dancing to rock around the clock. They were really good at jiving. My first record I actually got myself wasn't a single. It was that, that I owned was, was an arcade one called 20 Fantastic Hits. Oh, it was just amazing. I, I got it because I made a fuss because Janet had it and I wanted it. And, you know, I wanted my own one. It's got Maggie May on it. It's got the Push Bike song on it by The Mixtures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brand New Key by Melanie, which is still one of my favourite songs. T-Rex came along and they blew my mind. Uh, Slade, the sweet Janet was working for Decca at the time. And if you work for a record company, 
there was some kind of arrangement where you could get anything, any single for 17p, I think. Or it was like trade price, but it was a it was a mutual thing between the labels. Yeah, I, I remember Blockbuster and the Gene Genie for my for the same birthday, my seventh birthday. <laughs> Wombles opened a toy shop in our village. If you didn't grow up in the 70s, it's difficult to kind of appreciate how insane pop hysteria, how kids were just, and it was the Wombles. It wasn't David Essex or anything, but the Wombles came to open a toy shop um, before Christmas in, I think, the end of 1974. And we all went out to line the streets because they were going to come up the round the corner on, on this float. And everyone was screaming like losing it this sleepy little village nothing ever happened there packed you know people the toy shop windows that people the kids were banging on we want the womble you know they were bowing in and out the wombles came around the corner i saw one of them put their hands up to wave and then i fainted <laughs> next, the next thing i remember i was back at home with my mum and her friend jean uh, taking the piss out of me because I completely lost it to the Wombles. I was interested in two things when I was a kid. Felt tips, sort of stationery, that stuff. I did a lot of drawing and records and that was it. No football, didn't really care about anything on telly apart from things which had pop music in them, mm. like the pops or Liftoff or Supersonic or those kind of shows. Uh, but, you know, it was all so consuming and expensive if you're living on pocket money. You know, you had to really wheedle to get a record and really be really think about which ones you wanted. I got my first David Bowie album secondhand in, in 1975 when a friend of the family was taken at Her Majesty's pleasure. Before he went, he said, I want Mark to have my David Bowie record. So I've still got them. He gave me pinups, Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust, and they're, they're still in my collection now, those three. So that opened up a whole thing about, you know, pop music, storytelling. And every birthday and Christmas, I'd, I'd request a compilation, not just the music explosions and the dynamites, the big Cato albums, which I just love. I love the sleeves. I love the exciting names. I mean, this is about pop music. Hit machine, music explosion, you know, the covers, everything was exploding and neon. It was just like... You've got this fantastic mix of superb pop music in the 70s and superb compilation albums meeting that need. So it's a perfect marriage coming together. When you couldn't, because records were expensive, you know, and I said that birthdays, Christmas, I'd get these compilations, but we did have ex-jukebox singles. Did you have mm. that? Yeah, yeah. So an awful lot of my weekly pocket money would go, I mean, they were sort of 17p or 24p or something like that. They were half price anyway. But you took potluck, didn't you, if you bought one because they had the centre stamped out of them and very often they were off centre. Our big shopping trip was into Paisley and there was a chemist that we used to go into and they used to have this rack. The issue I used to always find was the more the more successful a single had been in the charts, the worse quality it was by the time you yeah. got home. I've got a copy of I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, dear, by Blondie, that sounds like you're playing a digestive biscuit. <laughs> yeah. And it was like that when I bought it. It starts with that lovely intro and then kind of goes... <laughs> yeah. You get to sort of 78 and I'm uh, 12 in 78 and I my mum made me get a paper round. You know, that's good because that meant I did have money to buy singles, you know, and, and we're talking about the actual, I mean, it's such a great year, 1978, 1970, yeah. even better. You know, you name it, it was like, hit me with your rhythm stick, my feet keep dancing by chic, I remember that. Gimme, 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 man after midnight. Stop your sobbing by the pretenders. It was paradise. We didn't know it, but we were living through a sort of Elizabethan period of uh, pop culture. The charts were, you know, firing on all cylinders, all genres, you know. 1979 was probably one of the first years I remember pop music. We didn't realise what we were living through at the time. There was a book came out by um, Gary Mulholland called This Is Uncool. My friend, one of my favourite books. It's just Hello, awesome. Gary. It's just fantastic. Isn't just it? awesome. It is still one of my go to books. He talks about 79, and I think he says that this is my favourite year. The, you know, there was disco, there was new wave, there was pop, there was country. Whatever it was, the quality yeah. was just so okay. Silly, yeah. Silly games year, isn't it? So oh, it's just, just fabulous. Better than that. But which of your guests was it Simon who went, who plumped for 78? 
Yeah, Simon Simon Philo. Um, he was brilliant. He, he was brilliant, and he had a point. And I, if seventy nine hadn't been even better, I would have said that that probably is the best year for pop singles. Seventy eight was the rosebud, and seventy nine was the rose because it felt like everything that started in seventy eight actually flowered in seventy nine. So. Whereas 78, you've got your what a waste. By the time you get to 79, you've got rhythm stick. Where you've got Denis and I'm always touched by your presence, dear 79, you get Heart of Glass. Yeah. Any year that first new number one is Heart of Glass, the last of the year is another brick in the wall. And everything in between was pretty amazing. Now, there's a fantastic compilation called Night Moves. Yes, I have it here. Well, KTL did three albums in 1979. They released three. They released High Energy at the beginning of the year, then Night Moves, and then at the end of the year, Video Stars. Yeah. But Night Moves, what about the sleeve, Ian? Oh, it's fabulous. It's just what 1979 felt like. And I've got my copy here. It cost apparently £5.25. We had a record shop in town called Airco. There was only one. There was Smith's and Boots had record department. To me... The level of a, of a compilation album is how much of that music you can still hear in 2021. Side one, Dreaming by Blondie. Video yes. Kill the Radio Star, The Buggles. Yep. Everyday Hearts by Sad Cafe. Lost in Music. The Crusaders, Street Life. Wow. I, could, I, you know, I could go on. You flick across to side two. You've got Ring My Bell by Nisa Ward. Bang Bang by B.A. Robertson. Angel Eyes by Roxy Music. So, Stay With Me Till Dawn by Judy Zook. Is- oh, that's fabulous. It's just timeless. It's so atmospheric. It's absolutely perfect record. Just with The Prince by Madness. I would have probably put that a bit earlier than at the end. Yeah, I wouldn't have stuck that at the end, to be honest. Not after Spyro Gyra, anyway. No, no. If you've got as far as Spyro Gyra, there's a danger you're going to miss The Prince, you know. That's absolutely right. But, the, you know, it's just great. And, of course, the very first appearance by Annie Lennox on a compilation. Exactly. Yeah, with oh, the two. Very often compiled. 79 Blossoms. I don't know what we'd call 1980. It's a little bit like The End of Summer, when mm. Garden is really nice, but it's just on the turn. 80, you've got Dexies and you've got Ashes to Ashes and Kelly Marie and you've got some great number. The Jam have their number ones in 1980. Odyssey gets number one in 1980. Yeah, because it's sandwiched between two extremely amazing years because 81, it's like spring again. I'm currently reading the superb new romantic book by Dylan Jones. Um, right. It's actually David Hetworth quoted in it. The golden age of anything is the period of inevitability, the period when things work in such a way as to make you think they'll work this way forever. And he's talking about that period of smash hits when actually everything they touched turned to gold. Yeah. And all and, our favourite pop groups have a period like that too, don't yeah. you? Yeah. You look at the charts of, you know, the late 70s particularly, and there must have been that thought process at Top of the Pops at Radio One that actually this is never going to end. Yeah. This is going to go on forever. Uh, nothing lasts forever. If it did, you wouldn't appreciate it. You know, that's true. Pop music being one of the most precious things that we've ever had at our disposal to play with for pleasure. You know, you wouldn't recognise 1979 as an amazing year if every year was amazing. But certainly by 82, I'm I'm certainly not giving up on the charts. I've, ne- I've always kept an eye on the charts. I carried on buying seven-inch singles, Culture Club, all of that stuff. But I was buying... I bought my first Velvet Underground Uh, album the day I left school in 1982 you know that was 16 you kind of start finding other things to complement what's in the charts I bought safety net by the shop assistant (laughs) same day I bought what have you done for me lately by Janet Jackson on single so you know it's just you it's not your only music the top 20 when you get to a certain age Now 11, featuring the Pet Shop Boys. Wet, wet, wet. Mel and Kim, Belinda Carlisle. To Pow, Jermaine Stewart, Billy Ocean. All on the hottest double album in town. Now that's what I call music. 11. 1988 was a very good year for now. That's what I call music. 11, 12 and 13 were all terrific i decided to go for 11 because it feels to me like the start of something and the end of something you know just what was going on in my life and what was going on in pop music you know it really did feel like a bit of a break from previous nows it definitely this one feels like a break from the mid 80s Mm. 1988 feels like things are moving again and that you know we're we're on our way to somewhere different it was a particularly exciting eye-opening 
inspiring time of my life and that's why I went for this one. The album cover of now 10, Autumn, Winter, 87. It's dark. It's the Mm. end of something. Now 11 is this wonderful mirrored skyscraper. You've got the light. Yeah, it's like Houston, Texas or something. (laughs) No, it looks like actually, you know what? Something's happening here. It's sunny as well. It's really, really bright blue and sunny. 21st of March, released 1988. Three of the big years number one's already on it. If we look at record one, side one, we're not going to talk CDs here. We're going to talk records. Always on my mind, Pet Shop Boys. Well, at this point in life, I was living in Rusholm in Manchester. I was just finishing an English and history degree. Very contentedly living in Rusholm in a little road called Markington Street, number 22. It was painted baby blue and turquoise inside. Uh, and I was living with my friends, Tim and Vicky, and we were all doing all the studenty things that you did in 1988, which was watching Neighbours, going to the corner shop in your slippers... Uh, eating hula hoops, smoking spliffs in the bath, watching Going for Gold. Do you remember that, Henry? See, when you said Neighbours, I just thought Going for Gold. That was the pair, yeah. Radio 1 was on all the time that the telly wasn't on. So you had your Mike Smith at breakfast. Then you had Simon Bates' Golden Hour. Then it was Newsbeat. I remember all this. Newsbeat, yeah. yeah. Then Gary Davis, you know, and then in the evening you'd go through your sort of John Peel, go towards your John Peel slot and everything. So, so many of the records on Now 11 are just Radio 1 in 1988. 1988 was a big year for Radio 1 because they were rolling out the FM frequencies yeah. as well. And When did it become 1FM? When did they change 1FM? Well... Certainly in uh, in the Central Belt in Scotland, we didn't get 1FM until October of 88, but I think they'd rolled it out earlier than that. Radio 1 was very, very much, it was tying together where we talked the pops. They were doing the simulcast. There's a word we don't use in 2021 anymore. Oh, I know. What a shame. The simulcast. <laughs> God. Simulcast, and if if you watch back the old episodes, obviously the you know the DJs were poked in the ribs to to remind people. I know. Constantly. We're live on Radio One FM. Yeah. Don't that- forget, folks, we're on Radio One. Um, you look at the track list down here, and yeah, it is it is absolutely wonderful. One FM, all the way. It is totally One FM, and it it's interesting. It's been definitely sequenced uh, carefully, hasn't it? So you've got side one, which is. Big name, big hits, I would call that. That's sort yeah. of just, that's that's big, big stuff. Side two's very rock. Side three's very pop. Very pop. Side four, house music. And do you know what? We're going to come to side four, because side four needs totally a bit of are. attention. But, but, got a lot to say about side four. But side, uh, you asked me about Always On My Mind. Well, yeah. something they did for the Elvis TV special. Which yeah, no, in so the previous August. they were invited to do this show for ITV, the Elvis, it was must have been 10 years anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I believe initially, I think it's probably Chris, had wanted to do Baby Let's Play House. I can only imagine what that would have sounded like. But if you are listening, Neil and Chris, could you please resurrect whatever your version, your 87 version of Baby Let's Play House would sound like? Because I think it would be awesome. There's still time. I think we'd all like to hear it. Well, you know, it was just, there's that funny story, isn't it? So they did it. Um, it got a really good reception and then they decided to record it again and put it out as a single at the end of an, an amazing oh. Pet Shop Boys. To, you know, it's a sin. What have I done to deserve this? Rent, actually, I mean, they could not put a foot wrong. This came out, you know, I still think it's the best Christmas number one of all time. Uh, I still think it's the best cover version of all time. Every year at Ducky, uh, the, the Saturday before Christmas to this day, we stop the night and announce our favourite Christmas number one of all time. We put this on and then we put the snow machine on and it's our favourite time of the year. You've read um, Chris Heath's Literally, I presume. Oh, yes, yes. And the story about um, Janet Street Porter saying, you know, that's good, that. You should put that as a single. And they went, Janet was number one at Christmas. You know, <laughs> she, tells, she tells them months afterwards that it's already been and gone. Later in 88, you get Domino Dancing, you get Introspective, you've got Heart and a surprise number one. What an amazing time for the Pet Shop Boys. The last track on Now 10 is The Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. The first track on Now 11 is always on my mind. 
I've never noticed that. This constant every year about, damn you pet shop boys, you kept the folks off number one. Well, do you know what? I bought always on my mind and I'm glad I bought always on my mind. I bought always on my mind and I bought it. It was that, I bought it on seven inch single with a little white, you know, a massive white um, photo with a little tiny picture of the pet shop boys on there. I I played them all to death. Have you watched the Go-Go's documentary? I haven't seen it yet. I'm incredibly interested in the Go-Go's. We play We Got the Beat and uh, Our Lips Are Sealed and have done for several years. Is it good? It's great. It's really good. I watched where, it over- where can you see it? Sky Arts. Okay, well, I've got that. I'll be honest. I wasn't greatly wearable into Carlisle in 1988. She kind of arrived. I know she'd had a one solo album before this, but it hadn't really done anything over here. Mm. And the Go-Go's really hadn't done anything. I mean, the documentary is great because, you know, they do talk a lot about their trips to England, about teaming up with the specials and releasing mm. We Got the Beat. They didn't really, and I mean, to me, it's still one of the greatest travesties that Our Lips Are Sealed wasn't just huge in this country. I was pretty pop savvy, but the Go-Go's weren't especially liked by the sort of alternative press that I was listening to. You didn't hear them a lot. They were sort of, uh, in my brain, they were sort of like a wacky US new wave thing, like a bit like Devo, but for girls. And I don't think that anybody really saw a number one coming from Belinda Carlisle at any point. In fact, do you know what? When I first heard this song, I might not even have made the connection that it was an ex-go-go until it was pointed out to me by a DJ or something. And it's, you know, the whole package is there. The video's there. Diane Keaton directed that. No rough edges. Very focused. Very, this is going to be big. Michelle Phillips from Mamas and the Puppers on backing vocals. It's got Diane Warren on backing vocals. Thomas Dolby plays keyboards. Yeah. It's produced by Rick Knowles, who's done Stevie Nicks, Madonna, Dido, Lana Del Rey. I think it's a great song. I probably like it more now than I did at the time. But, I mean, it's it's a big song. I don't think anyone's ever going to stop. We're never going to stop hearing Heaven is a Place on Earth. It's going to be around forever. Remember that programme that was on Hell's Kitchen? It was a reality TV thing. I got invited with Amy, who is uh, the maitre d' at our club, but also the night czar of London uh, now. We, we were in the dining experience of Hell's Kitchen, and Belinda was cooking, and they were cooking literally just there, you know, in front of you. So we, we all got a bit pissed. And, and as we left, we were all screaming. They were all washing up in the kitchen. Belinda Carlisle washing up. It should not be, should it? No. And we were all going, we love you, Belinda. We love you. From a now point of view, that's a, that's an amazing double kickoff it is. for any now album. Let me get to Billy Ocean. I loved Billy's big 70s hits, Red Light Spells Danger and yeah. Love That's Without You are our two Wood Family records that I remember being around. We've had When the Going Gets Tough. This isn't so bad. I gave it a listen the other week. And you know what? It, my my best friend talking to him today on our walk said, you know what? It's actually a quite good record. And it probably is. It's not as good as Caribbean Queen, which I like a lot. Yeah. I think it was his last hit. Billy Ocean was one of these artists that dipped in and out of the 80s. But whenever he came back, man, he arrived in big style. You oh, know, I mean, who saw that coming? And he, it's always nice to see him because I think he's a great bloke. Actually. Yeah. And incredible voice, really talented. This is produced by Robert Mutt-Lange, isn't he? Shania Twain's, who did the, I know him from the Boomtown Rats records, but he, he's done, you know, a lot of people. But mo- mostly rock, so quite unusual. It's a big record, you know. Yeah. And again, going back to Belinda Carlisle, big, well-produced songs for that type of period. Yes. Now, if, if I had a criticism, which I think would be fair to make of it, is that it sounds a little bit 1985-86. Yeah. Well, just goes to show how quickly production and the sound of pop was moving. Track four, say it again, Jermaine Stewart. I bought We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off in 1986. Say it's quite nice, it's fine. Uh, he had a couple of hits. He was never totally accepted as an, as an R&B star. But, you know, the sad thing about Jermaine Stewart is he just sort of died um, of AIDS, AIDS-related illness. I don't remember people being terribly like bothered about it you know it was just like he just died this pop star from the 80s had died and even sadder his grave didn't even have a tombstone for over 17 years mum put one in in the 2000s which i think is, is terribly sad for someone that made such joyous pop singles so we talk about billy ocean being one of the king of comebacks eddie grant go on the internet and look up eddie doing electric avenue on razzmatazz the kids 80s program is absolutely the best tv you'll see this january it is so beautiful the kids are freaking out they're all singing 
However, this isn't Electric Avenue. No, it's not. Like Billy, it's his last top 30 hit in the UK. So we've got another Eddie, different spelling, mm. thanks to Levi's. Now yeah. did like throwing in the Levi's songs, didn't they? They really did. And to me, this is the most jarring point on the on the album. It certainly doesn't sound like it belongs in 1988, but it certainly would have looked like it belonged in 1988 were you to watch it with the ad. I watched the ad. You can see the ad on YouTube. It's obviously one of the all-time great songs ever, but, you know, when we play the game at the end where we can swap songs for other songs that aren't on here, I have to say, come on, everybody's in my line of fire. So we've got the quiff of Eddie Cochran. We've got the quiff of Stephen Morrissey sitting next to him. Debut single, Stephen Street produced, Swedehead. Having been completely not that interested in the Smiths at the very beginning, to being completely obsessed to the extent that, you know, the reason I was in Manchester was mainly because of the Smiths. By the time Strange Ways Here We Come came out, I'd lost interest. However... Swedehead reeled me right back in. I just thought it was so refreshing to hear that brilliant Stephen Street production. I think it sounds great. The little dinky piano sounds on it. It's beautiful strings. And, you know, I just think it's a wonderful album. And I was living in uh, Rush Home, which is obviously a very Morrissey place to be. Um, there's a song on Fever Hate, which I still think is the best thing he's ever written, called Late Night Maudlin Street, which mm. really resonated. And yeah, Swedehead. I really think it's beautiful and I really, really still love Viva Hate. So recommend side two, what do you want to pick up on there? Where do you want to begin? Uh, well, I think we can we can probably talk about Johnny Hates Jazz and Wet 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 at the same time. <laughs> they are the same. <laughs> they are very similar. And these were, as we were saying, Heartland Radio one. Yeah. Uh, the Wet 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 one has aged okay, I think. You know, it's pretty good, actually. What I didn't know was that Angel Eyes has an entire verse from a Squeeze song called Heartbreaking World in it. Johnny Hates Jazz. Mm. But you know, that's a song you still hear a lot on the radio. A lot. A lot, a lot, yeah. I mean, you're into third single territory here off the yeah. Johnny Hates Jazz album, starting to drift yeah. a bit. Yeah, And and, uh, and funny enough, to power as well, aren't we? There's quite a few on this side, actually, that's that kind of third, fourth single syndrome. It's, yeah, it is. It starts, it gets more rocky as it goes along this side. You know, Valentine... I personally like the Tapao singles um, at the time, even, um, and I think Carol is hilarious. There's a there's a family video from the Christmas before this, not, Christmas '87, of my cousin Victoria miming to "China in Your Hand" and I'm playing a broom behind her. You know, that's it's like you say, it's the third thing. It's not Heart and Soul, which is my favourite. It's not oh, China, yeah. which is the big one. But you know, she can she can sing. Yeah, Billy Idol, Hot in the City. Mm, This This is is interesting. What a funny thing to be on a 1988 album. It was actually from a few years earlier, wasn't it, originally? I did a bit of research. I couldn't work out why they reissued it because it's on big with Tom Hanks later in the year. uh, And so that's a long time. It was produced by Keith Forsey. He he co-wrote Flashdance, didn't he? And Don't You Forget About Me, he co-wrote and produced. And was involved with Bonnie M as well. Yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. And he's... uh, the, you know, he's a big name. I like Billy Idol. Eyes Without a Face is the one for me. Hot in the City's quite good fun. It's quite well produced. Uh, there's a sweet little story about the fact that in America, he recorded where it was big. So where in, in, in the version that we all know, he shouts, New York! But in America, he recorded versions for all the other towns. So every radio <laughs> said, you know, Amarillo, Minneapolis, Boston, instead of New York. So I thought that was quite sweet. Very, very 80s excess record company stuff there. Schneider O'Connor. Mandinka. Well, you know, we talk about Kylie Minogue later. We talk about Belinda Carlisle. And we've got the third female artist that's going to change things, you know. Mm. And they're all making their debuts on Now 11. This is just terrific. It's like this ferocious four-minute howl of rage coming from this tiny, fragile-looking girl with shaved hair. I don't think she ever bettered it, to be honest with you, even with Nothing Compares to You. I love Kevin Mooney's production on this, the big, almost antsy, Adam and the Antsy sound, you know, from hanging out at the Hacienda and uh, the clubs in Manchester at the time, how influential she was in her look, that kind of chic thing that she had going. I bought this on 12-inch single because it and it was incredibly loud cut. That's what I remember about this. And I just love the bit in it when she goes, I have refused to take part. I just think that is yeah. a profound moment of pop music and a really serious one. Brilliant. Later on in the Now series, there was always what was called the indie side. There isn't any 
notable indie music on here you know not not even in in the kind of record label side of things but just in the sound and the kind of feel yeah that's about as close as you get here it is there's one that there could have been but we'll talk about that later come to that i bet you you'll you'll guess it anyway Kylie's with us this morning. Good morning. Hi. And the best of luck with that. It should be a real winner, not just because it's good, but because you've got the best producers in the business, haven't you? That's right. Stock Aiken and Waterman. So, record two, side one, kicks off with a little-known Antipodean singer. Kylie yeah, Minogue. To her? Kylie Minogue, I Should Be So Lucky. It's just one of those songs that when you heard it, you couldn't believe it hadn't always been there. It sounded so incredibly familiar. It was just, it was like... Of course this record had to be made. Of course that melody had to be written. You know, and of course she had to deliver it. It's interesting that it was almost a disaster, you know, that they forgot she was coming. It's a really famous story. They forgot yeah, yeah. over and they had to write it really quickly. It's just fluid. I love the key changes. I probably would have had an issue with her slightly girl next door image, but you know, it was neighbor's time and that's what she was in the show. People like me bought it and I was a, you know, 22-year-old student. In fact, 21 when it came out. Kids loved it. Everyone watched Neighbours. You know, they had to show it twice, didn't they? Because people were bunking off school to watch Neighbours. Chris Lowe in Annually, that Pet Shop Boys book, you know, picks it as one of his favourite records of all time, even though it's only a few months old when the book's put together. And he says, I just love the line, I should be so lucky, 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 lucky. <laughs> That's banal. It's a strength, which it kind of is. And Gary Mulholland in the brilliant book that you mentioned, and this yeah. is his review of it is just lucky, lucky, lucky. He picks it as one of the best records since Punk and Disco, and that's his review. Three words. You can't remember before or after, but I Should Be So Lucky has just always been there. But interestingly enough, and I suppose it is a strength of Kylie's career, it hasn't become an albatross. It hasn't become that type of one song that defines somebody. Hasn't she had a brilliant career in that respect? Once you get to Better the Devil, you know, I'm back. And then, confide in me, I'm back. And then spinning around and I'm back. And then can't get you. you know, she keeps doing this. She keeps yep. coming back with great records that represent every stage of her career. And that's maybe why this isn't an albatross. I really liked Mel and Kim. I was on board, bought, showing out and got respectable for my 21st birthday. So that's a year old now. She was ill with cancer when this was, uh, she had to discharge herself from hospital apparently to record the vocals for this one. I really enjoyed hearing it again. I mean, it was, you know, just obviously a very, very tragic end uh, to their brilliant little career that, um, you know, people like me and you will never forget Mel and Kim. So job done in that respect. I remember buying a seven inch of showing out. Yeah. I talked to Elliot about how loud some records sounded. I had yes. never heard a, a seven inch single as loud as showing out. I, I completely agree. And you know what? Stock Aitken Waterman's divine singles of that as well. Yeah. They must have had some kind of wizardry or something when they were getting them cut. Yeah. They'd known something that we didn't. I think it's Pete Waterman's testimony to club culture, early 80s club culture and disco. I mean, I think yeah. he, he knew what he was doing. And he those... also would have wanted his record to sound louder than anything else. Um, I work with his daughter and I'm always saying to Tony, get your dad, to... <laughs> ask your dad, text your dad and ask him, you know, if I've got like a bit of gossip I want him. I was like, to ask your dad what he thinks of Mickey most, you know, what he thought of Mickey <laughs> You know, I'm always doing things like that. <laughs> I mean, he's just great, isn't he? Should we do Bananarama now, even though it's a bit later? Yeah, let's let's jump to Bananarama because they go quite well together. You know, I, I can't help it's great. I miss that red lippy look that they did so well that that's what the girls I went clubbing with wore. You know, black lycra, red lipstick, big bleached hair or black hair or a bob. You know, it was just a fabulous, fun time. Uh, it's energetic. It's great. It's the last one with Siobhan, importantly, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. want you back. And Nathan Jones were re-recorded with Jackie O'Sullivan. I love this group. Never stop loving them. They're amazing. Manchester at the time, the Hacienda, there was a club called The Gallery, which was in town. I played a lot of brilliant R&B, black pop stuff, electronic stuff. There was a club called The Venue uh, on the same street as the Hacienda that played uh, a real mixture of rare groove and early house and hip hop and public enemy. A place called The Man Alive, which was my first ever all-nighter. Joyce Sims's All in All and Lifetime Love 
Yidahud, all of those, Hacienda, big, big track at the Hacienda. Coming to My Life came out. I don't think it's dated at all. Neil Tennant chooses it as one of his favourite records in annually. We're at the beginning of 1988. I was trying to think about the records I had, you know, hanging around, LPs, you know, Idlewild by Everything But The Girl, Bananarama's Wow, Janet Jackson still, Control, Sign of the Times wasn't that old, Faith wasn't that old by George Michael, Alexander O'Neill, Savage by The Eurythmics. That's a great album. Absolutely. Uh, my favourite of the previous year, actually by the Pet Shop Boys and, and Coming To My Life, the album. I thought Curtis Mantronic is a genius. I produced some brilliant records. I love the hip hop stuff as well. Look at the producers that Now Eleven's got. Stephen Haig, Phil Harding, Old Cut, Stock Aiken and Waterman, Tim Simonon, Stephen Street, Jelly Bean, Julian Mendelssohn, Rick Knowles, Roy Thomas Baker, he did the power one, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. Keith Forsey. That's like the story of 80s music production. One thing I'm going to say about Dollar is that I, I kind of push back at the popular narrative that Dollar were just a rubbish group until Trevor Horn overhauled them uh, with his Trevor Horn magic. I am a big fan of Shooting Star. I'm a big fan of Who You With in the Moonlight. Uh, they were incredible productions by Christopher Neal, who did another one of my favourite songs of all time, which is called Dancing in the City by Marshall Hayne. Marshall Hayne, yeah. Uh, yeah, he did that, and he did Sheena Easton's Modern Girl, another brilliantly produced record. So, you know, they were not they were probably in the dumper as far as commercial success goes, but they hadn't disgraced themselves. However, it's a long time between Shooting Star and Who Were You With in Moonlight and, and 1988, and they'd had this phenomenal Trevor Horn moment in the middle uh i mean mirror mirror handheld in black and white videotech these songs are pretty faultless how do you top that well you come back and you co cover an erasure single that hasn't been a hit so not too many people have heard it you do it at a time when erasure are definitely on the rise you know they're becoming a force to be reckoned with you get the pwl team uh, to mix it this is a big ducky record ola more totally overloaded really really loud it's like how i mean how much more exciting can you get into a pop record not much it's just brilliant Therese bizarre she kept a copy of i'm not in love by 10 cc on cassette in her bag in case she needed to hear it in an emergency and it was the only song on that c90 she just had it over and over again that's my that's my that, memory of them. and that is good enough for me uh, me too good taste uh, vanessa Paradis. Joel the Taxi. Love it. It's perfect. Uh, what can, I mean, what can you say? We play this at Ducky. We, we will literally stop the night at Hoppers 12 and it, we call them handbrake moments in the crowd when everything's getting really, really exciting and just drop something like this. It's, and people just absolutely love this track. It's incredibly French. Yes. <laughs> the whole thing. I love it the way she sings Amosumak. It just gets me every time. I wish I could go to Paris every time I hear it. Again, this is a record that won't get forgotten. And of course, she had a great album coming down the pipes a few years later with Lenny Kravitz, which is another one of my favorites. Which is also superb. It's just a, it's an outstanding record still. And uh, I don't think that time has been unkind to it at all. It still sounds as fresh as a daisy to me. Wasn't a bad year. I'm just thinking that was also the year where Voyage Voyage. Finally, oh, yeah. finally became a hit. And, you know, we haven't talked hits albums yet, but hits albums gave that two opportunities to be a hit. Um, know, but right? In, in, in 88, you know, because again, we don't often have big, big foreign language hits in the UK charts. So when, when they do come, they tend to be quite memorable. Voyage Voyage is another incredibly memorable record that if it didn't happen, someone would have had to invent Voyage Voyage. For the good of mankind, you know. Not perfect oh. is <laughs> the stutter rap by Morris Minor and the Majors. We do love a novelty record in this country. They were the bane of your life, especially in the 80s. The, the, the novelty records just were really poor in the I mean the chicken song, Star Trekking. Yeah. Bump up the bitter, no, no, 19, not out. It's like spare us from these attention-seeking comedians who have nothing but contempt for pop music. They don't understand it. You know, this is a good example of somebody who definitely doesn't get what the Beastie Boys were about at all. It got to number four 
which means the British public deserve all that's coming to them. I think we'll probably cut most of that out, to be honest, because it's not. Yeah, great I mean, there's no point if you can't be nice. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the end of side three. So we take a well-earned breath before we hit what is quite possibly, I would say, one of the most important sequences of music on Now's career. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. <laughs> about acid house music there's meant to be a drugs related craze i presume they do frenzy dancing that kind of thing um probably out of control it must affect the brain in some way unless it's just the music that does it Now had had the odd house record before. Had they done Jackie Body? Jackie no. Body on 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 no. Pump up the volume. Yeah. Pump up the volume. Yep. Uh, and uh, but the club hits were now becoming a bit of. They were you know very very spaced apart those early house records. Um, and now they're becoming less spaced out. And we're talking. We're we're moving towards a, a tsunami of electronic dance music becoming proper big hits. The first one of these bomb the bass beat this really felt like it started something. Chemical Brothers described it as the first big beat record and um, that they've got a point there. When Tom and Ed did a fundraising DJ set in the Heavenly Social, um, in the tiny basement, being up that close, it was 100 people squashed in to hear a Chemical Brothers classic set. They played this. They played it after the Temptations, Ball of Confusion. It sounded amazing. At the time, there was a club in the middle of Moss Side called PSV, and I was in there the first time I heard Beat This. That's where I first heard it over these massive speakers. You know, the drums blow you away. The samples are really exciting and interesting. You know, Pascal Gabriel co-produced this and he mm. ended up co-producing Theme from S Express as well. What a TV! Even if you did anything else again, and he's done lots. But, you know, I, I feel for Tim Simenon, I think he's been unfairly relegated to a bit of a footnote in Britain. Yeah, yeah. And this was way ahead of its time and it influenced a lot of great stuff. What you're seeing here from a kind of now point of view is a recognition that this isn't going to go away. And actually, we either get ahead of the curve here or we get seen to be behind. And actually, fair play to Ashley Abram, to the compiling team, because what they've done here is actually say, right, here is the way things are going. Beat This entered the top 40 at number five. Now, this is in a time when you had to sell an awful lot of records to We're still in that period when records going into the top 10 as a new entry was a big deal. For an unknown dance record of this nature to go in at number five is just incredible. Wikipedia very helpfully gives you a list of what all the samples are. 25 different things, some of which you'd recognise, I recognise, you know, Curtis Blow and uh, and the Barkays and stuff, but I wouldn't have known, for example, that that was Jane Mansfield. Uh, so, you know, it's it's just great fun. It doesn't let up. The 12 inch is the version to go for here uh, because it just unfurls like a, you know, it's like an oncoming juggernaut. There's an urgency to it, but there was an urgency. The best bits of pop culture in 1988 were about urgency there was a kind of street element to it for example um, you think of something like Network 7 on Channel 4 it was cut and paste it was fast moving it was urgent and Beat This felt like that when it came out yeah it's like almost like we'd all been asleep Chris Lowe also chose this at the end of the year for his favourite records and um, he says he thinks the bass line is very similar to the bass line on Love Comes Quickly and if you think about it it is We've got a hot one for you. Can you take care of it? We've got a hot one for you. Can you take care of it? Doctor in the House, Cold Cut, featuring Yaz, Plastic Population. Vastly prefer this to The Only Way Is Up. It's about only about 5% less exciting than Beat This, so it's still pretty exciting indeed. Again, it's excitement. It's just that they just don't let up the whole way through. There's something different happening about every 15 seconds with Doctor in the House. Yeah. That's cuts thing you know we'd had the paid in full thing as well the year before their remix of eric b and rakim i mean it's just absolutely brilliant doctor in the house hilarious as men you know all these records that had house in the title we're, we're being schooled very very quickly that house is here to stay we got this house under arrest i know you're gonna dig this and we keep the house going. It's, it's just all house the way. House arrest. Another house, house come, yeah. By Crush. Uh, 
just what just the one big hit. It's just got that that kind of like almost like a machine gun intro. That yeah. looking at the video, I watched the video. I mean, that just that look of the baseball jacket, the the sort of rah rahish skirt, baseball caps. You know, it sort of set the tone. People will still look like that a couple of years later. If you think about Beats International, it was still very much the the style going forward for the early house thing. Lots of lycra again, tights. It's Mark Bryden, isn't it, who ended up in Maloko? Maloko, yeah. Again, I think what I like about this side, it's the UK driving dance music as well. It is. It's the it's the best thing about pop music is when some people get something from another culture or country. So this is UK kids all over the country. They're all kind of in their cities making up their version of what they think sample culture is, what sampling's all about, what house music's all about. You know, and giving it a lot more, let's face it, care and attention than mainstream America did. We took it, we loved it, we ran with it and made it in something different. The DIY ethic here, there's the punk mm. ethic of actually starting again. From the beginning of Beat This, suddenly you're in a completely different place from the rest of this album. You ju- yeah, you'd, you'd gone into another portal almost. Side 4 is so distinctive. It's, it's literally a different planet you're on. It's certainly not like the previous Now albums. There was a safety in Now. Hits, hits sometimes ran a bit differently. Hits went a bit off-piste often. Yeah. Now often didn't do that, but here they are doing it and they're actually yes. taking the lead, which is great. It really is. Um, so we've got the Jack that House built. Yeah. I don't know who they were. I mean, there's very little information about them. I remember it. I think it sounds like LFO, which comes a couple of years later. So it was obviously quite ahead of its time. <laughs> House by Beatmasters featuring Cookie Crew. Heart stopping. It is. I first heard this song the year before. Jonathan Ross had been given a radio show on Radio One. He played this, and I just hit record immediately on my little Akai stack system. So I had it, and then it came out, sort of didn't do much, probably a bit early for people. Came out remixed a bit for this hit version. It's just insane the Beatmasters are insanely good this seven inch version of it which is like it's just like a breathless run of three minutes you know what it it is really hard to find and it's not on Spotify I know which is such a shame because to give the Cookie Crew some credit their vocal performance on this track is incredible (laughs) how I mean how quick are they I mean they're just going for it aren't they they are fly I remember my, my my mad family used to hire a coach every year and go up to the Grand National at Aintree on a Saturday. Everyone would be drunk by the time they got there. And, you, and I wasn't really interested in the horse racing. I went along for the ride, really. And I stayed on the coach. Dave Lee Bloody Travis having a real go about Got to Keep On by the Cookie Crew, which came yeah. out of this. And he was really slagging it off, saying it's just a rip-off because it's got Edwin Starr on it. It was a sample and he said, I'm going to phone my good friend Edwin. And Edwin Starr came on the phone. Edwin Starr was like, no, 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 This is brilliant. <laughs> this is the future, Dave. You've got to get with it. The Beatmasters, I absolutely love. I mean, Rhythm King, what a label. The Beatmasters, who's in the house? The next one with Merlin, I think, was their mm. name. That was mm-hmm. terrific. And there's the Betty Boo one. Uh, you know, they they gave us Betty Boo. And then the P.P. Arnold one. <sighs> well, you see, the P.P. Arnold one, I mean... It's almost like you can't get any better. I, I bought Now Dance 89, which has got the full length Who's in the House with Merlin. I used to listen to it on headphones and it would blow you away. Their stuff is very badly represented on streaming. So we finish off the album with, first of all, two thirds of Fine Young Cannibals. Yes. Um, uh, taking a rest. Uh, from the Fine Young Cannibals. Obviously, they must have been thinking about She Drives Me Crazy and stuff. Yeah, it's good. After the run we've just had, it's a slight step down. They're obviously very good. I mean, they were in the beat, and I absolutely adore the beat. But the great thing about House, I suppose, was it was so democratic. It was such a melting melting pot. It was liberating. It was punk. Everyone was having a go. Kids were having a go. Experienced musicians were having a go. And, you know, it was good. And then we finish off with Amy Fisher. This was unusual. This would have fitted perfectly on side one. I felt it was a bit gilding the lily giving it the remix it did, because I think the song itself is beautiful. And Stephen Haig produced the original version of it. Um, And I I love that. And I love Love Changes Everything as well, which I think were as good, really, as anything that George Michael was writing in that sort of area. It's a very odd end to the album, though. 
If you were going to do some changes around the album, would what would you do? Well, hits is starting to have an effect, isn't it? Now there are some holdbacks, some obvious holdbacks. I'd lose Eddie Cochran definitely, and I'd replace that with "I'm Not Scared" by Eighth Wonder. I would get rid of Eddie Grant. Sorry, Eddie. <laughs> Sign your name by Terence Trent Darby should be on here. I would definitely get rid of Morris Minor and the Majors. Put on "Tell It to My Heart" by Taylor Dane, which is an absolute stonker. I would get rid of "Give Me All Your Love" by White Snake, which none of us can remember. Neither of us can remember. <laughs> and put on well, I can "Shake Your Love" by Debbie Gibson. And I put that on the pop side with Banana Armour and Cookie and um, uh, Kylie. I would get rid of Tower of Strength by The Mission and put on Crash by The Primitives. Now that would have put some indie on this record. Yeah, and I would have got rid of Jelly Bean and put on Ship of Fools by Erasure. CBS and Warner were absolutely now gunning for this market. Bros as well. Um, yeah, you know what? I, f- I forgot Bros actually, but Bros should be on there, shouldn't they? We'd have to yeah. take. Yeah. Yeah. But every single one of those artists, they're all on Hitsy. Fairground Attraction, Aswad, all these other ones, uh, AHA as well, they were all being held back now. But what's interesting, though, is that this was the first year since 1984 that now reverted back to three albums a year. So they weren't feeling the pinch particularly. No. They were probably having to put some number 20 records on that they yeah. really wanted to, the White Snakes, or you know, bring Spring to Mind. but. They are definitely feeling, you, you feel the absence of some of these uh, really keenly. And, and they're the ones that I identified. Uh, but apart, I mean, e- you know, even without those great Sony, um, uh, which, were they Sony then or were they just CBS? They were still C- I think, I think they were still CBS and Warner. Yeah, I don't think they've been bought yet. And they're still CBS, Warner's and RCA. RCA. I think it's really interesting to see the kind of running battle. And it only really happened for a couple of years because Sony eventually got fed up. But... The hits albums in some way are almost like, I think I described it before, it's a bit like the kind of BBC versus ITV. Now had that kind of tradition, we're going to present the hits, that's what we're going to do. Whereas hits had the, do you know what, we're not going to give you the hits, we're going to give you something a bit more left field and it might work and it might not work. Sometimes they got it right, sometimes they got it wrong. But it makes for... never have done monster hits, that was a big mistake in my Oh, that, that, I think that was the biggest mistake because... They... They're great songs on monster hits, but they should never have... It was the branding. The branding was all wrong. And yeah. actually, because um, they went from Hit C and then they went just went to the Hits album with this strange suit, yeah. which 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 was wrong. And then they swung it right back to Hits back, Yeah, The branding was back. It all looked the same. And then suddenly Monster Hits arrived. The second Monster Hits, something's called Snap It Up, is brilliant. Yes. It yes. actually, in some ways, is a better snapshot of 1990. Yeah. But what the fuck am I buying? Am I buying a hit sound? Am I buying a monster tape album? Is it called Snap It Up? What is this thing? Now that's what I call music. That's what it was. The hits album was becoming a thing that you knew what it was and they kept mucking yeah. with it. Yeah. And that and that's where where I think now did win the war in the long run. Pete Selman, I talked about that way, way, way back. It was that logo. That logo kept it all moving along it didn't matter what you did with that logo as long as it was there people knew what they were yeah. buying you know there's a part of me that misses i mean i love this period of the now of albums a because you got them on vinyl and they look really luxurious and gorgeous but just the fact that they all look different now i have to i have to say if i see it now that's what i call music in the supermarket i'm like have i got that one we're in the period now where they're all being individually designed you know it's they've got this great changing kind of uh you know so so for me uh, music's almost as visual as it is what you're listening to. So I can always see these Now albums as their sleeves. I, I love Now 11. I love Now 12. I love Now 13. I just think they managed three blinders that year. Um, and uh, I'm glad they did. Actually, weirdly enough, I didn't buy this when it came out. I bought all three of the 1988 Nows at Christmas 1988 because I by then I was back south. I was in London. I was earning money. So it was a lovely Christmas that year. Beautiful Now albums to play with. Mark, thank you so much for joining me here on the Back to Now podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Oh, I've had an absolute blast. Absolutely pivotal moment in my life and uh, in, in British pop culture as well, I'd say. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for bringing so much joy with your podcasts, Ian. Enjoyed them all. Can't believe it's me on it. Thank you so much. 